All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thank you, guys. On the line, I've got Ted Galen Carpenter, new senior fellow at the Libertarian Institute. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Ted? Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be affiliated with the Libertarian Institute. It's a new home, and uh, I hope it'll be one that uh, is very productive for both of us. I'm sure it will be. And, you know, we publish books, too, and I know you like writing them. So mark your calendar. <laughs> um, all right. And speaking of books, your latest is Unreliable Watchdog, the News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. And this is really something else here. How long have you been working on this thing? I've been working on that book uh, about a little over two and a half years. Yeah, it's really and great. it's... Uh, has a lot of evidence about how the news media have absolutely failed to provide its uh, proper role with respect to the American people and alerting them to um, misconduct and uh, incompetence in U.S. foreign policy. You know, I've noticed this ever since I was a kid, that the newsman is always on the cop side, no matter what it is or whatever the mayor says or whatever, if you have a problem, even, you know, here in Austin, seven on your side. But their job really is explaining why you just need to sit there and take it because that's the way it is. And it's always been like that. And it comes to the wars, too. I mean, remember, they called it the Rummy Show when Donald Rumsfeld would get up there and go, I don't have to prove that Saddam's friends with Osama and give some riddle about you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know yet. And that's good enough for everybody. They loved it. Um, but so I don't know. I was born against these guys, no matter what. Uh, how come the journalistic field is full of people and, and institutions that are so biased toward the state? I mean, they get some scoops here and there, of course, but it's almost always still from the government's point of view, you know? Well, two things uh, really struck me as I was researching this book. One was just how little daylight there was on issue after issue after issue between government accounts of foreign conflicts and U.S. involvement in them and what purported to be news accounts. Uh, most of the news accounts uh, turned out to be little more than rewritten uh, official statements position papers, or uh, press releases by the CIA, the Pentagon, the State Department, and with regard to the nexus between domestic security and, and foreign affairs, the FBI. And that's uh, making news outlets into propaganda conduits, not independent monitors of government behavior. The other thing that struck me 
was how often uh, the news media portrayed uh, complex foreign conflicts and foreign disputes as morality plays with all evil on one side, whatever side the U.S. government was opposing in another country, and all innocence and nobility on the other side, the one that Washington was supporting. Those characteristics stood out time and time again on foreign policy issue after foreign policy issue. All right, so let's pick on Woodrow Wilson because I hate him even though he was dead long before I was born, but he's the father of Joe Stalin and Adolf Hitler and the Bush family fortune for starters. So um, tell us about his propaganda campaign during the First World War. That was a textbook example of how uh, public could be conditioned to support an extreme policy, one that would have had very little support before the war broke out. And yet the herd mentality took over. I would even argue a lemming mentality took over, and that was actively fostered by the press. And the press was the Wilson administration's conduit for mobilizing the American people to hate everything German, to regard this war as a crusade, as Wilson put it, to make the world safe for democracy. And that anyone who opposed that was guilty of sedition. Now, some of this sounds rather familiar in our own time. But it was especially intense during that period. And it has left scars on this country, deep scars. The most uh, noticeable one being the continuing existence of the Espionage Act of 1917, which is being used today to harass critics who dare reveal government secrets or government misconduct. So that uh, was an episode. Wilson indeed was the father of so many of the problems that our country faces today. Yeah. Well, and it's no accident. I mean, he was a bad person who believed in horrible things. And so guess what? It turned out that the way he behaved also had horrible consequences. I mean, him and all of his people, it's just amazing to think. Um, I forgot exactly the context, but we were joking the other day about uh, Colonel Edward Mandel House bragging that, oh, yeah, well, I anticipated Mussolini by several years back, you know, when Mussolini was popular and House was jealous. Um, but, uh, you know, that's who those people were. And then so, yeah, there's no surprise that that's how they acted. And then that that's the legacy that they left was real fascism in Europe, the kind that makes, you know, American style blush. And um, and then the war and the whole world empire ever since then. It's, you know, the Republic of Dishonesty, the empire lies, as uh, Ron Paul called it. And I blame him. And you know what? It's funny, right? Because uh, he was not the worst. <laughs> if it hadn't have been for him, we might have gotten to World War One even earlier, right? Well, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and a lot of his followers were pushing hard for U.S. involvement in the war uh, within weeks after the outbreak in Europe in uh, 1914. So Wilson talked a good game right up until he was safely reelected 
as president in 1960. And then the tone changed and he pushed the U.S., uh, pushed Congress to declare war in April of 1917. This begins a legacy, but what we've seen in the su- subsequent decades is, is truly uh, scary because it represents a mortal threat to domestic liberties that uh, Americans had uh, taken for granted and to a large extent still take for granted, even though they're in grave danger. Yeah. Now, do you talk in the book about, um, you know, British intelligence and that whole op to pressure us into World War II? I touch on that briefly, but most of the book uh, focuses on the period of since the uh, end of the Cold War. The reason being, I had a previous book that I published in the late 1990s called The Captive Press, which dealt with a lot of the issues from the Spanish-American War through the end of uh, the Cold War and uh, the the start of the Persian Gulf War. This book covers some of that territory as well, using new sources, sources that didn't exist 20, 25 years ago. Uh, But most of the book focuses on the period beginning with the wars in the Balkans Mm -hmm. and going forward to the, what I termed the second Cold War with Russia, which increasingly looks like it's turning hot rather than cold. Yeah, I know. They just, I heard them on NPR talking about China the other day. They just take it for granted that, oh, all this increasing of tension could lead to a cold war. Well, it could lead to a hot one, but they can't even imagine that, you know, they can't just say it could lead to a war. That's one of the problems that uh, I'm amazed at the casual nature with which U.S. officials, other Western officials, and the Western news media regard reckless proposals, uh, proposals that could easily trigger a shooting war between the United States and Russia, or between the U.S. and China. And yet they act like this is just purely an academic exercise. There's no real danger of the conflict between NATO and Russia, for example, um, escalating into a, a direct conflict and one with nuclear implications. It just their minds don't seem to grasp the seriousness of that a danger. And uh, they instead act like this is, I guess, some kind of war game where nobody's going to die. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, so before we get to the Balkans, because I really want to hear all about that. And this is definitely on my list because, of course, I'm writing a book about all this Cold War stuff right now. The new Cold War that could turn hot. Um, with Russia, that is not China. Um, thank God I don't know nearly enough about China to try to write a book about that. But um, on Vietnam, I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit because I was raised to believe that, man, you would not believe the level of lies. Never mind you wouldn't believe the lies, but you wouldn't believe how bad they lied all day, every day. And I guess kind of the iconic uh, image as it was explained to me was a report that's not necessarily live, but on tape from earlier today, you know, um, where a guy is saying, yeah, we lost 400 guys today and they're stacking their bodies like cordwood in the background. 
And I go, yeah, I mean, they killed a lot of the other guys too, I guess. But boy, did our guys get their ass handed to them. Back to you in Washington there, Jeb, you know. And then they would say, and now live to the Pentagon briefing. And he would go, man, we whooped their ass today. We lost three guys and four wounded. But boy, we killed thousands of them. But meanwhile, everybody could see, like, you know, over their TV dinner, they could, no, we just saw a pile of bodies of American GIs, dude. You can't, and then it was like that, I was told it was like that every day, that the kind of lies that they tell us about Iraq or Russia or Palestine or whatever are just nothing compared to the degree of dishonesty, which I guess is what provoked such a reaction. Also, all the dead bodies, right? The 60,000 dead Americans, you know, coming home in body bags, too. But part of it, too, was just the contempt that was displayed for the American people, that you're just going to believe us because we say so, no matter how outrageous the propaganda is. And and I guess, um, you know, I, and maybe journalism got a little better for a while after that as kind of backlash or maybe that's a mythology or any of those points relevant to you, sir? Well, it, uh, it was a case where journalism got somewhat better. Uh, both uh, reporters and the American people were amazingly trusting of the U.S. government going into the Vietnam War. That experience did sour. Uh, both the public and a major segment of the press. And they found for the first time, I guess, the realization that the government routinely lied. And that that was disillusioning in the extreme. The journalistic community after that, up until the Persian Gulf War, was certainly more skeptical of government accounts. And that skepticism came through, uh, particularly with the Reagan administration's uh, policies in the third world, in Angola, in Central America, and so on. But that didn't last. And I wonder how much of that was simply partisanship, that most journalists were Democrats, and Reagan was a staunch, obviously, a staunch Republican. But once you got to the lead up to the Persian Gulf War, it was like Vietnam never happened. The gullibility in the press, the willingness of the press to pass on preposterous stories in some cases to the American people as fact, uh, rebounded totally. And that has continued to the present day. It really has not dissipated in the slightest despite the bruising experience uh, in Iraq, where even some uh, key journalists had to admit they had been dupes and served the interests of uh, George W. Bush's administration and the Iraqi National Congress. This was the exile group that was desperately trying to get the United States into a war with Saddam Hussein. But that that second disillusionment didn't last at all. Uh, within a matter of a couple of years, it was gone entirely. As right. we saw when uh, the U.S. intervened in Libya, in Syria, and now that we're seeing the confrontation with Russia and the meddling in the Russia-Ukraine. Yeah. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. 
garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than the Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks. And this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I. rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And there's free shipping, too. Well, let's go back to Iraq War One there for a second, because that was such a huge one. And I was interested in that. I was in ninth grade and I wasn't a Republican. So it wasn't that I believed in Bush, but I did like fighter jets and explosions and stuff. So I supported the war and um, I can't say I really bought into like, Oh, we have to go save the Kuwaiti people and stuff. I don't remember thinking that, but uh, you know, I did pay very close attention to what was happening at the time. And so I have very vivid memories of the media coverage and it was something where you know, James Webb wrote in his book, the former um, Secretary of the Navy and, um, and Senator, said that, you know, a lot of people who had opposed Vietnam were looking for a war to support. And a lot of people who had supported Vietnam were looking for a war to win. And so this is one where we could all get together. In fact, I found the quote where Brent Scowcroft says, one of the major reasons we did this was to beat the Vietnam syndrome, to get the American people back together, united behind a foreign war, and to set the precedent that this is who we are and this is what we do. And you people come along with it. And it worked. It worked so well. Yellow ribbons around every tree, even way out in the countryside. You know what I mean? And, well, and in downtown, too, everywhere. Uh, and all the brand new country songs that were produced and put on the radio just to support the war and all this stuff. I mean, they really did it up, didn't they? Well, it, uh, it was a patriotic boom and avidly, avidly encouraged by, uh, George HW Bush's administration and, um, news media that was at least in, as enthusiastic about this conflict as the U.S. government was. Mm-hmm. And I bring that, up myself uh, as a... Surprisingly as a, easy victory. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I bring levels. up myself as a high school freshman because I equate 
the mentality of the entire country at the time to my own at the time that this is it was a it was a nation of 15 year olds being told by a Republican president that you can you can indulge your bloodlust. This is something wrong that we can all do together. So let's do it, you know. And the fact that the war did not turn out to be nearly as bloody for the American side as was predicted by almost all observers made that seem like a just a tremendous success. So if we can do that to Saddam Hussein and kick his forces out of Kuwait, and the, the main debate over that time was whether we should have pushed on to Baghdad and overthrown Saddam. The people who were saying this is a bad idea, this is going to entangle us in difficult Middle East affairs for generations, those voices were absolutely uh, suppressed. They, they, they got no traction whatsoever. But that set the precedent that, hey, we, the United States, can intervene anywhere, anytime, and secure an easy victory. And that led, in turn, to the interventions in the Balkans, and then, of course, in Iraq, Libya, Syria, and what we're seeing today with regard to Ukraine. All right, we'll talk a little bit about the Balkans because the breakup of Yugoslavia, it's obviously very difficult and a lot of difficult names to memorize and these kinds of things. And the CNN morality tale at the time was the Serbs are the Nazis and they're trying to genocide all of their former co-statists there in the former Yugoslavia. And so... America and our allies have to help all of their poor, innocent victims. Does that sound about right to you? Unfortunately, that is a very accurate description of the of both the uh, official U.S. policy of the Clinton administration and the news coverage. And it's exactly right. The Serbs were demonized. They were the latest incarnation of Nazis. And the uh, the... Bosnian Muslims and the Muslim Kosovars with, uh, with regard to Kosovo, uh, they were absolutely innocent victims. They were uh, democratic freedom fighters trying to uh, resist brutal Serbian aggression. And it was that simplistic. That's the way it was portrayed to the American people. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, I want to skip ahead to because, well, I don't know, we can talk about Iraq War II a bit more if you want. But the other one that's really interesting to me from this era is Syria, where you had these just complete and total frauds like Michael Weiss of the Daily Beast and all these supposed experts who really rallied the press, the rest of the press and the American public to some degree around back in Al-Qaeda against a guy in a three-piece suit. And then they said that we were the bad guy. We were crazy for criticizing their policy that led directly to the rise of the Islamic State. And it wasn't even a covert op. It was right there in front of everybody, like the slowest motion, craziest cr train wreck you could imagine. It's unbelievable. And the press... Yeah, one would have thought that, uh, if not U.S. officials, at least U.S. journalists, 
would have been a lot more cautious about official accounts, given the experience of having been lied to with respect to Iraq about Saddam's arsenal of weapons of mass destruction that Iraq was supposedly connected to the 9-11 attacks. Both assertions were, were total nonsense. So one would have thought going into Syria that they would have been more skeptical, more cautious. Instead, they were, for the most part, willing channels of the Obama administration's propaganda that we were supporting democratic freedom fighters in Syria against the brutal Bashar al-Assad. In fact, the opposition, for the most part, consisted of Sunni extremists, in some cases, really radical types, including uh, the Nusra Front, which was al-Qaeda's affiliate in Syria. Most members of the news media covered that up entirely, did not let the American people know that, and again, vilified anyone who pointed out that reality. Instead, they maintained the fiction circulated by the Obama administration. And that's when journalists become nothing more than cheap propagandists. And that's what happened with the Syrian war. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, as bad as Iraq War II was, it wasn't meant by the people who started the war in America to benefit Iran and Al-Qaeda. That's just because they were really bad at being imperialists and starting aggressive wars and stuff. But deliberately taking the side of Al-Qaeda and in broad daylight and getting away with it, dominating the narrative in such a powerful way, is it just that the military-industrial complex advertises on the major channels and it just comes down to simple stuff like that, Ted? Or I got to tell you, when I was a kid... And they said, oh, no, there's no John Doe 2. You don't need to worry about that. Or even, you know, before that. Oh, the Branch Davidians, they killed themselves. You don't need to know what was going on at the back of the house. And every newspaper man in America agreed. I thought, well, it must be a weird secret society type based conspiracy of control that I can't see. Because how do you get every newspaper editor in America, every major TV news producer in America to just pretend to believe that? That couldn't possibly be true. And we see on things like this, too. Back in the Al-Nusra front, I mean, it's not like you and me are the weird ones on this. They are, but they dominate somehow. And so what's the secret? It's not the secret conspiracy. Is it just the money? The money is part of it, but I think there is something a bit deeper and uh, more worrisome. And that is the the herd mentality, the presence of groupthink with a vengeance. Most of the journalists have similar backgrounds. They have similar educational experiences. They view the world in much the same way. And unfortunately, it is a really distorted way. It is one that is uh, incredibly dangerous for both the safety and the liberties of the American people. But we've seen that on issue after issue after issue. It's not like they're holding a secret meeting every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock and deciding what the, the party line is going to be for uh, 
for news accounts for the coming week. It's that they view the world in fundamentally similar ways. So they react to developments in the same way. Uh, one can call that brainwashing. It uh, may be uh, an accurate term in this case. And add to that the economic clout of the military-industrial complex and the career incentives. If you want to get ahead as a journalist and get a post at a major news outlet, being an iconoclast is not the way to go. You simply parrot the party line, whatever it may be at the moment, and you will see your career advance. Contradict official accounts, contradict the dominant narrative, and you will find your career sliding backwards and that you will be increasingly marginalized. We have seen that again and again and again with journalists who were once pretty prominent and now are very obscure. Yep, and meanwhile, Jeffrey Goldberg, the guy that said Saddam and Osama were working together against us, he's the editor of The Atlantic. And TV news is full of all guys who were all wrong on all of these things all along. And that's how they keep their job. And it's not in spite, they don't have their job in spite of that fact. It's because of that fact, quite obviously. All right, and I'm sorry we're out of time, but um, thanks very much to you, uh, Ted Carpenter, new senior fellow at the Libertarian Institute. The book is called Unreliable Watchdog. The News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.